Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Rick Frost has been the CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation for nearly a quarter of a century. He's seen it grow exponentially during his tenure in staff, assets, and in impact to the community. To commemorate his final days as CEO, we wanted to have Rick return to the podcast for the second time to reflect on his life, his career, and the legacy he's leaving behind. I sat down with Rick Frost, CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation, to talk about his philosophy on philanthropy, his wonderful history and career, and what message he has for the future of our city, our community, and our foundation. Rick Frost, welcome back to the Because and Effect podcast. You are our first ever two-time guest. So uh, <laughs> no, thanks, for being here. <laughs> thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, we're having you back almost a, a, an exact year to the day. Last time you were on the podcast was April, April 2nd of 2020. We had you on to talk about COVID, and that was the main focus because that was kind of when things started to... Uh, to really get serious and really get real, I think. Uh, so my first question is, one year removed from kind of everything that's happening, I see you're in the office today. How, how can you kind of retrospectively look at the last year and how have you been feeling about how the foundation responded and, and how everything's kind of shaken down for Winnipeg uh, in general? Well, I think it went a lot longer um, than I thought it would go if you go back a year ago. Um, I think that, um, you know, our community has done well in terms of trying to balance the, the whole question of public safety on the one hand and keeping the economy going on the other. Um, so I think that that's been good. There's no question that the, some parts of our community are more vulnerable and some of those uh, inequities in our community's uh, structure are, have been revealed. Um, more than maybe we might want, maybe we might have wanted to see happen for sure. Um, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel, and I think people are feeling good about that. Um, you know, we sponsored the skating on the river this year, and all you had to do is go to the river. Even one one of those days, uh, you know, we were, I think we had like 50 days of sponsorship on the river, and go out any day and and see all the people who are out out there, and you you recognize that on the one hand, you know, they're out there because they've been sort of cooped up on the one hand, but on the other hand, this, this whole energy and the people enjoying the city in a way maybe that they hadn't before. Um, I'm sure that things like Trails Manitoba, you know, the, uh, those, those kinds of organizations that worry about parks and, and, and outdoor activities are just overwhelmed with way more success than they ever thought they would see. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got organizations that, are, as I say, are stretched for sure, stretched more than normal, um, and organizations that are, you know, have have um, really had to struggle because of things like, you know, if you're an arts organization, you obviously can't do theater work and that sort of thing. So um, it's a really, it's I think it's a pretty mixed bag in terms of how we've come through it. But I think the fact is we're coming through it. Yeah, very well said. I think I've I've been talking with a lot of people. And I really think that there's going to be a, uh, well, you can just tell that there's already this desire to get out and go see a show, go, go to the, you know, opera or whatever, go to the ballet, go to the things that we haven't been able to go to and just celebrate, you know, celebrate life and celebrate Winnipeg a little bit. Um, speaking of celebration, you are mere days until your, uh, retirement. So congratulations on that. Is it 24? Well, I, I don't know the exact years of how long you've been rocking it out. Well, 23 and a half years, but I'm, I, I believe it'll be about that. So it's, uh, yeah, you're catching me on a great day. Here am I in my office and enjoying the last couple of days in my office. Um, and, uh, doing a little bit of work here, trying to clean it up and, mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of things. But yeah, there's no question. April 26th is closing in fast. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time for sure. It, it's a crazy time. We'll talk about sort of the transition and with, with sky, sky bridges coming in in a second, but let's, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's take, take me back to Dundas, Ontario. I want to know a little bit about Rick Frost, you know, the, the, the kid, what were you like growing up? What was things like back then? I, I understand that your parents had like a fish and chips restaurant. What was it like there? Just give me a little bit of a snapshot of what it was like growing up uh, for you back then. 
Well, Dundas is a great little town if anybody ever has a chance to visit it. It's right under the uh, Niagara Escarpment. And so, um, you know, I grew up in a, in, in a place that was a, like a block away from the woods where you could just go out and, and, and be on the Niagara Escarpment, go for a hike. Uh, build yourself a little campfire with a can of beans, you know, and make yourself some, make yourself some lunch or something like that out there. We had wonderful um, waterfalls close to us, Webster's Falls, Two's Falls, like the significant because of the because again because of the escarpment, some really interesting places to go and 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 sort of enjoy the outside. Uh, Dundas, when I was growing up, was a very small town, fifteen thousand people, maybe over maybe twelve to fifteen thousand in that time frame. Um, you know, um, going to church, scouts, boys brigade, you know, all those kinds of things that you did back then, um, you know, young peoples and, and that, that sort of thing was a big part of my life um, back then. Um, my wife and I met um, when we were very young and, uh, you know, we went, uh, dated a lot in high school and, you know, we ended up getting married again in secondary university. So it was, uh, you know, sort of childhood sweetheart kind of story you know from that perspective uh, great great childhood uh, my mom and dad did run a fish and chip store if you go to dundas today you'll see frosty's fish and chips right on the main street of town um so you know it's a um yeah it's all part of uh growing up in a small town high school sweeties i did not know that but my parents were too so that's a, that's a beautiful story well, very lovely. Okay, well, now take me back. So you took me back to childhood. Take me back 25-ish years ago when you first transitioned over to the Winnipeg Foundation. Uh, you worked for the city and with the city quite a bit. Why did you want to make that transition from public service to kind of to the more philanthropic sector? What was what was going through your mind back then? Well, I think um, it's probably important to say that I came to Winnipeg um, to work for the city of Winnipeg, to work for the city. And, and I do consider that part of my service to this community. Um, I had a very interesting and um, uh, sort of fast rising kind of career in Ontario. Um, I was I worked for the city of Burlington and, and Hamilton, and then I was in Peel Region, Mississauga area, right outside Toronto. And it was Mayor Bill Norrie who uh, recruited me to come here to Winnipeg and work at City Hall here. Um, it was a very challenging time in the 1990s. There's no question about that. Um, there was uh, no money for sure. Uh, there's some recessions going on and, and a lot of cutbacks happening. And, and in the city itself, uh, things were not as pleasant as they are today. You know, I think that, you know, the loss of the Jets in 96, for example, many people would point to that as being a real um, setback. And, and so um, moving to the Winnipeg Foundation, I, I saw as being, you know, a continuation of public service. I didn't know that much about, I mean, Bill Norrie had always spoken so positively about the foundation. He was a very big fan of the foundation, but, but, um, but I didn't know the foundation that well, but it was still public service. And so you're moving from a large city organization into the, um, into the philanthropic sector. For me, it wasn't so much a change in from public sector to philanthropic sector was still public service. And, mm. and I think that that's what I found appealing. And I wanted to stay in the city when I left, when I left city hall. Um, so it, it, it became a, um, the, the desert of my career as it turned out. I mean, you know, it's, it's been such a fabulous uh, place to be and we've enjoyed such uh, good success. I don't mean me personally, but our foundation has enjoyed fabulous success over the last 24 years. And, and um, obviously, it was a, it was a really good move. It was a tremendous move, absolutely. So maybe give me a vision of what you thought the job was going to be back then, when the foundation was what five people or six people, <laughs> compared to now, where we're over fifty employees, you know, in over nine hundred charities in the city. How did your uh, vision of the job differ from what it was to what it became to what it is now for Sky moving forward? I think um, when I you know, the, the, the culture of the organization was virtually shocking when I got here. And I mean shocking in a very good way. <laughs> um, you know, after working in city halls and four of them um, for, um, for, for 25 years at that point, you know, I'd been in four different city halls. You're, you're sort of used to the, um, to the stresses of, of the public sector. Um, there's, there's incredible stress if you're an elected official or if you're a senior management person. Um, because there's always far more public demand 
um, than there ever are resources. And um, there's a real struggle going on all the time. There's a lot of tension. Um, and, and while there's a degree of camaraderie, it's nothing like it's like at the Winnipeg Foundation. I mean, there's just no comparison. And, and when I came in, I into the foundation, I was, as I say, virtually shocked at the at all the goodwill, the, the fact you had all these uh, volunteers, people literally giving you money uh, and uh, so different than City Hall and, uh, and, and organizations passionately trying to do good work. And, and this whole idea of sort of being an intermediary between generous people of goodwill and organizations with passionate volunteers trying to get stuff done. I mean, it was, um, it was a joy to come to the Winnipeg Foundation and I knew it virtually on day one. I mean, you walk through the door, you know, you, you immediately got that image. And um, so my first impressions as I started to learn how the system worked a little bit was that there, as you say in management, low hanging fruit everywhere. Um, it didn't matter where you turned, you know, you could do this project, shall we take on this first, second, whatever it might be. Um, and I was getting phone calls from people saying, can we work together on this or that? And, and um, so I, I think when I think back on those early days and, and, it, and it almost continues all the way till today because I had two or three phone calls yesterday from people still trying to get stuff done, right? And, and um, it, it's just this, this feeling of what can we do for the community? And, and again, and, um, and it can be a, from a volunteer's kind of perspective. They're trying to work on a, as a board member in an organization or, a, or it can be from a donor who's, who's willing to put money behind something without any look for some sort of return. You know, basically we want to help the city. So it's uh, um, that, that feeling, I guess, has continued. And you say we've moved from six people to, you know, 60 people, so sort of 10 times bigger and certainly our asset has grown even more than that. You know, we were probably 140 million, maybe 150 million. Now we're at least 10 times that bigger, bigger than that today in, in terms of money. But the, but the culture and the passion that falls behind the, the philanthropic sector, um, it's still public service, but it's just very different than City Hall. For sure. Yeah, it's it's in, it's infectious and it's inspirational, you know, doing this podcast and t just talking any any interview I've ever done. I walk away being like, OK, how do I get the world? How do I make the world a better place? H how has the foundation changed you? I think. Um, well, first of all, I guess just from a straight knowledge base, I would say I know the city a lot better today than I knew it when I came here. I mean, I came from Ontario's chief commissioner of the city that I didn't know. And so, um, you know, my career is probably backwards. I probably should have come to the Winnipeg Foundation and, and, and did uh, 25 years at the Winnipeg Foundation and then did 10 years at City Hall. I probably would have been um, a lot better chief commissioner um, from, from the perspective of just, you know, having way more knowledge and understanding the city better. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's... Um, made me w a lot more aware um, of all the aspects that make a vibrant city work. I mean, Winnipeg is not as, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest other cities are sterile, but many cities are sort of, they grow up fast, right? I mean, you, you, they're like a great big suburb. If you're in Mississauga, you're seeing, you know, a great big, huge suburb. It's like Linden Woods everywhere. Um, Whereas Winnipeg has got a very rich history um, and there's diversity everywhere. And, and, um, and so I think when you work in the Winnipeg Foundation, we won a thousand charities last year with grants. You see all these little elements that make the city what it is. Um, and I think at City Hall, uh, there's more of a tendency to see the overview. You know, you're trying to, you're working at a more of a policy level and there's a lot of bureaucratic stuff going on all the time. Um, and you don't have the same opportunities to be out in the community and talk to people about what they're trying to get done. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's very different in and certainly it's affected how I think about public service macro versus micro a little bit, right? Like you're kind of focused on big picture when you get to actually sit down and go to lunch with people, take meetings and, and see what's happening on the ground, ground floor a little bit. Um, what, 
what is your philosophy when it comes to the, the relationship side of the business? Because I think the, the, one of the greatest things about you is how you are, have been able to maintain and continuously uh, improve relationships with all at like with politicians and with with, you know, governments and with organizations and everyone. So uh, take me through your mindset when it comes to just maintaining these relationships and trying to try to connect donors with organizations and 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 and. If you know what I mean by that, like, what what is your policy when it comes to you know sitting down with someone and trying to f- find common ground and 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 strengthen those relationships? Well, first of all, that's a very flattering introduction. Thank you very much <laughs> for saying that. Uh, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is listening. Uh, that's mm-hmm. probably the biggest answer to the. It's pretty simple and in a sense, in a sense, um, you know, um, again, when you compare public service, oftentimes it's very tight schedule. You know, you come in and you know, got 45 minutes or 20 minutes to talk about this, 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 and, and, and there's so many topics. Whereas in the, in, in the charitable sector, you can actually sit down and talk to people and say, you know, what are you trying to get done and try to understand. And, and, and as I say, people aren't coming at it oftentimes in a, in a business way, they're coming at it from a passion. <laughs> and, and, and so there's a, there's, there, there is definitely a difference. I, I think in terms of, um, of how that works and i think the biggest thing you can do is listen and try to open your keep your door open um take meetings take phone calls um be available um and i think that those are the kinds of things and then when you're around for as long as i've been around you start to really you know you have a you have a bit of a depth of knowledge that you don't have obviously when you start out for sure. What you're saying right now kind of reminds me of that phrase that uh, my colleague and, and our colleague Rick Lucier would say in humble leadership. And it's just, you know, being able to listen is a lot different than sort of the attitude that maybe a lot of different CEOs have of like, I'll talk, you do the listening, I'm the expert, we'll tell you how it, how it goes. Can you just expand on humble leadership and what that phrase means to you and when you heard it or, you know, how, how, do, how does that apply to how you've been running things for the last uh, 24 years? Um, it's, you know, I, the philosopher that I use, the business guru that I, that I read a lot about was Edwards Deming. And he talked a lot about systems thinking and, 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 and how systems work. And um, so you have that sort of philosophy, but then at the end of the day, they ask him, um, you know, what's the most important thing? And in the end, he said, people, that's the most important. And, and, and so um, I, I think that that's what it really kind of boils down to, um, just recognizing that, yeah, there's great big systems going on out there, and, and, they're, and, everybody, and everybody's trying to get the job done because everybody's hired to do jobs and whatever systems are intended to get things happen, make things happen. But in the end of the day, people are what matter. And um, both in terms of the relationship of how you work with them. And, and secondly, what you're trying to do and we're in public service. I mean, our, that's our job. Our only reason for being is to serve the people of Winnipeg. That's our only reason for being here. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Um, who were your mentors coming up and who like what did what did you take from some of your mentors even before you came to the foundation or during or, or can you and what did you learn from some of the the main ones that uh, that you studied under well um obviously I, I wouldn't go to my university days i did a degree in in history obviously i did a degree in public public admin and at, at queens and whatever but you know, I, I think my bosses, the people that I worked for, were sort of important, obviously, in shaping um, my my um, my approach to things. Um, I had a a couple of people at Burlington, the clerk um, and the deputy clerk, fellow by the name of Bill Sims and Roger Cloutier, two great people who hired me and recruited me and told me some basic things about public service. A lot. I had a professor at Queen's University who sort of helped me um, learn a few things about um, and, and get me actually to do my public admin degree there. My, my, my master's sort of brought me along. Obviously, Bill Norrie, um, I, I really count him as being um, an exceptional public servant. Um, 
he was a, uh, just a wonderful ambassador for our city and, and a wonderful leader as far as I'm concerned um, for our city. I mentioned Deming sort of influencing me from an, from an academic um, perspective. So there's you know, a number of people along the way who've influenced how I think about things. Beautiful. Uh, have you always been interested in history and, and that stuff? Or did that come when you got to university? Or where did that love of history come from? Um, it, you know, it probably goes back a long, uh, probably goes back a long way. Um, certainly, I did two degrees in history, so you know, I did a master's and, a, and I did a bachelor's before that. So that that's part of it for sure. Um, I was very instrumental um, in creating the Peel Archives Center. Uh, there's a in downtown Brampton. There's a, the old the old county jail and um, and museum and. Uh, courthouse we, we it's just a fabulous if anybody's ever in downtown brampton it's just a fabulous location i was very involved in 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 that in that project for many years um you know one of my frustrations i guess you know if you look at some of the things that i've worked on personally in in in, in my time here i think of things like the manitoba heritage trust program that we put in place with the manitoba government it's a fabulous uh, program that we've been able to do and compliments to the to the government for that. Um, you know, you think of the investments we've made, for example, in the Manitoba Museum, the new Winnipeg Gallery, or, you know, Dalnavert. You know, I think the Winnipeg Foundation is very much behind Dalnavert. And, and um, we've put 14 significant history scholarships in place in the last five years. So I've got my things that I've been sort of working on, but I've also had my frustrations. Um, you know, we made two significant efforts to convince, to, to try to engage with the city around the city archives. Mm -hmm. uh, one sort of behind the scenes on sort of financing and one very publicly where we said, you know, we'll give you $3 million. I think it was $3 million to engage with us on, let's get this city archive issue addressed. And, you know, it's very, very frustrating. Um, the fact that, I mean, it's a mandated service. Um, you know, and our the city archives is is a rich, rich depository of of materials, and the fact that it's in a very vulnerable warehouse without proper um, humidity controls and all those kinds of things, it's 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 a total shame, and, and it's very frustrating for someone like me who's interested in history and sees sees that failure of uh, public policy. So many of the issues that are that are sort of plaguing society these days. I, I keep going back to uh, that old adage, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And it seems like we're making a lot of the same, like I'm not very good at history, nor do I claim to be a history expert. But you know, even when you look back to the, to the pandemic, the flu pandemic in Winnipeg of 1918 and 1919 and seeing what's happening now, like what are your thoughts on that? Just in general of, of people sort of not, not necessarily their unwillingness to study and know about history, but just sort of the gen, maybe not general apathy, but you know, why isn't history more of a, <laughs> of a priority for people? And when you see sort of the same mistakes happening over generations, is that another frustration that you might have? Well, for, you know, for many years going back, if you went back 200 years ago, like history was an absolute fundamental. Like, it, it teaches all the values. It teaches philosophy there's all there's so much in history and, and it was the well maybe not necessarily the core subject but certainly one of the core subjects um and and i and i guess we can learn some i know you had professor jones on your podcast recently and and um i'm sure she would take lessons from from 1920 and say here's how it relates to today right i mean she probably could do that i haven't listened to that podcast yet and i will do that but <laughs> but um but I think that there are a, a lot of lessons in history, a lot of the understandings and the misunderstandings. I mean, look at the reconciliation issues that we face today um, as a society. Um, and, and it all boils down to the fact that history was misrepresented. Um, you know, the history I learned, the history you learned, um, didn't tell us that we were treaty people. It didn't tell us that our government signed agreements that said we would do this, this, and this, and our society didn't do it. Um, and so now we're living 
with the results of the failure of that. And we didn't even know we were failing. I think for many of us going through school, we just didn't know. So, you know, I, I, I think it's a failure in public policy that history isn't uh, more, um, more, more of a required, more of a required subject. Um, and certainly one of my passions right now, and as I go into retirement is to try to promote the study of history um, um, in our province, because I think it is important. Everybody, everybody's not going to be passionate about it, but we do need a few people who understand the history. Mm -hmm. Very well said. It's context, right? It's all about con historical context teaches us so much about modern. And I'm guilty of this too. Like as a, you know, I, I was probably just as, you know, flippant about history class in high school because it was just like, ah, whatever, you know. But now that I'm going, getting a little bit more mature and a little bit older, I understand the historical context is so valuable and, and important to, for, to, to understand what's happening today, not just in Manitoba or Canada, but across the world, you know, for sure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your passion uh, when it comes to the histor history, history scholarships that you're sort of putting in place and have been for the last few years and, and where did that come from and, and what can people, or um, just give a little bit more information about the history scholarships that you're personally sort of uh, invested in. Sure. The, um, I think it's probably important to say that it's the Winnipeg Foundation Centennial Year. 1921 is when we started here. It's 2021. It's 100 years. So five years ago, we're looking ahead and saying, how are we going to celebrate this? And one of the ideas that came up is there should be a PhD in Canadian history um, a scholarship to support somebody to, to study in that area. And so that took me down to the University of Manitoba. I sort of drifted into the history department one day and sat down with a couple of profs and one in particular and sort of asked her some questions about how does this all work? Because I didn't know. Um, hadn't paid any attention particularly to the history department of history faculty and started to learn a little bit about it and found out that, you know, the resources that the was it, and maybe this is generally true of arts generally, but the resources that are available uh, on a competitive basis with other universities are lacking, to be candid. I mean, you know, there's some, I'm not saying there are any scholarships, obviously there are some, but but the reality is we're competing with Queens, McGill, you know, Alberta, Toronto. And if we want to retain our best students, if we want to attract students to study here, we have to have good scholarships. And what I found was we didn't um, in this area. And then it may be true elsewhere too, but in this area we did. So I went about um, trying to put some in place and uh, we've got 14 so far. I'm hoping that we can have more. Um, and and um, and the result is they're very competitive scholarships. Um, you know, we've got one scholarship I'll just mention for an indigenous archivist student. So think of an indigenous. How important it is to have indigenous students looking at the archives because right now we've got archivists who are mostly white, who are mostly have a colonial education like you or me, and and with sort of settler background, not in, not indigenous background. So we need people from indigenous. So this scholarship pays 17,500 a year for two years. That's competitive. You're not gonna do better if you go to Toronto, right? So we need to put those kinds of um, scholarships in place so that we retain our best students, that we attract students here. Um, and, and I'm sure it's true in other faculties but how did I fall into it? Because it was our 100th anniversary and sort of aligned suddenly with my own background. And I'm going, oh, geez, we, we, we need to do some work in this area. So mm -hmm. off, I, off we went. It's one of your many legacies that are and that word is probably I know mean, we have our legacy circle, but that word is probably taking a little bit of a different context considering your retirement in you know, four days or four weeks or whatever it is. Um, have you thought about that word? legacy and what that means and, and sort of what you're leaving behind or have you not given that much thought in the, in the last, uh, you know, year and a bit? You know, I, I, I think of um, Sky coming into this job right now and, and, and uh, the great opportunity that he's got. And I, and I don't know that that's my legacy. I think that's the, that's the legacy that thousands of donors have created. I mean, you think of the Winnipeg Foundation having this kind of an asset base to serve the community. Um, no, it's a, it's a fabulous um, legacy, and, and it's not created by any one of us. It's created by us. It's a community foundation. 
Um, I so I, I think that the I think that there's a a huge opportunity, a wonderful base to work from. But I also think we've got some significant challenges. And and you know um, if you think of our city and you think of the things that we've done, we did a report two years ago or three years ago called stretched stress stretched and still standing, and we're talking about how challenging it is to be in the charitable sector. And if you go back to your comments on COVID, you know, one of the first things we were doing was getting money to the to the organizations that serve the vulnerable people, the most vulnerable people. And I look at sort of uh, the efforts of the foundation, some of the special initiatives that we've taken like Nourishing Potential or Literacy for Life or Kids Camps or Growing Active Kids. There's so many initiatives that we've launched and, and that are I think important. Um, but having said that, this city still has massive equity issues. I mean, if you have to go to the washroom in downtown Winnipeg, you, there's no place to go. Um, if you're a poor person, you could sleep in the bus, in, in the bus stop um, during the wintertime. This is not good. Um, so I, on the one hand, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we've, we've been really working hard. We've, we've, we've done some great things. And, and that's a great legacy to turn over to the next person, right? But on the other hand, I also recognize that there's some huge problems. And, and, um, and, and, and I think equity, um, you know, equity, ha equity is the top priority at the Winnipeg Foundation. Our Winnipeg, our our statement is mm -hmm. Winnipeg where community life flourishes for all. And so the for all part is about equity. And, you know, that's, that's basically who the Winnipeg Foundation is all about. And, and so on the one hand, I look at the legacy of all the good things we've done and the assets we've grown and the fabulous staff we have and wonderful board and all that kind of stuff, which is a great thing to turn over. But I also recognize Boy, there's some big problems in this city that that public policy seems to be just failing to deal with. Yeah, very well said. I always love hearing you talk about the endowment model. It's weird to say that because it sounds, you know, just that that maybe doesn't invoke the most exciting of, uh, of emotions <laughs> right, right off the hop. hop. But the way you always seem to put it really helps me as someone who may not have the most patience in the world. And I kind of want to just get, you know, fix the problems now. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the long-term vision of the Winnipeg Foundation and, and Mr. Alloway's vision of, you know, yeah, he that $100,000 that he started the foundation with could have probably solved $100,000 worth of problems back in 1921, but he said, no, we're going to put this away and we're going to, you know, just talk about the long-term vision versus the short-term need and how you've tried to keep that balance over the last 25, 24 years of, of being at the foundation. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of organizations that in our city, a lot of good organizations that are in the business of dealing with today's issues. Um, and in many ways, um, you know, Money is being churned in our city, and I don't mean that negatively, but you know, if I give a dollar to some organizations, that money is going to be spent, and I want it to be spent well, and it's going to be spent on today's needs. That's not what the Winnipeg Foundation is about. We're in the for good forever business, and, and, and so when you give us a dollar, we're going to invest it someplace, and it might be in a, it might be in a toll road in France. It might be in a commercial building in downtown Calgary. But fundamentally, we're going to take that dollar and we're sending it someplace. And it's sending a return back to our city. It's sending new money into the city. It's not churning existing money. It's bringing new money into our economy. And it's a totally different way of thinking about philanthropy. Um, and, and, and so Mr. Alloway's idea was, yeah, I'm going to give you $100,000. And in 1922, we had $6,000 that we could spend. And so when you think about this strategy of here's a hundred thousand, you can only spend 6,000 the next year. You have to be a patient, patient person. <laughs> but I come back and say this year or this past year, we spent $73 million in grants back to the community. Now, has that got your attention? <laughs> you know, I say, you know, and, and you start saying, well, hold it. This is a, 
this is a juggernaut kind of thing that's growing and 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 um and yeah that's what happens it's it's uh, and most financial managers will tell you you know you invest a little bit each day and one day you'll wake up and you got a big nest egg and and essentially that's what's happened for the community our our, our city has got a wonderful nest egg that's been created by thousands of generous people over a hundred years and and um and so, yeah, I, 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 I think it's important that we be stewards of it, um, and and that we and that we use the income from it um, in a wise way. That um, you know that the people who gave it to us 50 and 60 years ago would be proud to say we left that money for the for the benefit of the community, and they're using it to good advantage. Yeah, it's crazy to think about the, that exact concept of someone a hundred years ago saying, "I want." Winnipeg to be better in a hundred years, but they, they wouldn't even be able to conceptualize the technology, the problems, the issues, the, you know, the context of 2021. So how do you sort of find the balance of honoring the decisions of the past, but also recognizing that problems didn't even exist back then that now exist today? And how do you kind of reconcile the, the, uh, the needs of present day versus the desires of donors from the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if I can answer that directly, because, but there, there are definitely challenges in running the Winnipeg Foundation from those kinds of perspectives. Um, I think um, one of the most obvious is that donors have specific causes that they care about. Generally, a donor wants to give to something specific, whereas the community more broadly is looking to the Winnipeg Foundation to respond to the request coming from for, for a grant application. They're, they're making applications. And so the donors in some respects are, are, are sort of setting restrictions and limitations on what you can do, but the, but the community is looking for this response to the issue of the day. No one envisaged, as you say, technology or COVID or where all these various things <laughs> that we're sort of facing today, a hundred years ago, maybe. Um, and, and so there's a real push and pull as the intermediary um, that's going on. You know, we want to respect owners' wishes for sure. Um, and, and obviously we're more than willing to set up designated funds for your favorite charity. Um, and that limits what we can do with the income off that fund. And at the same time, we're trying to respond to the applications that are coming from the community and trying to find that balance. Um, there's stresses on that, uh, to be candid. Um, uh, we would all like more discretionary dollars, and yet we want to respect our donors' wishes. Fortunately, there's this new methodology called donor-advised funds, where people are able to be quite engaged with the Winnipeg Foundation and sort of actively looking at what's happening in the community. Um, and at the same time, look at the application. So you sort of get the mix of both. And, and during COVID-19, we saw that at spades where a lot of our donor advisors who had some discretionary resources said, well, we know you're reacting to this. And, and they started moving their, 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 the dollars within their endowments across to support the community applications. And so I think that there's those uh, kinds of challenges that exist. It's not the only challenge um, that exists, obviously, but but that's certainly a challenge, and, and you were trying to put it in the framework of going back 20 or 30 years, but I think it's a challenge in today's, right in today's context, never mind yeah. going back and looking at the needs or the, right. or the restrictions that were set 20 or 30 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, it's always, that push and pull is something that really intrigues me when I think about the needs of, the, of, of what's happening today versus what we thought the needs would be 20 years ago or what the needs were 20 years ago and stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, growing active kids and, and all these different programs. Um, but what are some personally personal highlights for you that you're really happy that you've, that you kind of moved the needle on in the last 23 years? Is there anything that pops to mind when you think of things that you either spearheaded or were happy to see come through as, as you were the CEO? Well, nourishing potential would certainly be one of the ones. I mean, I was very involved in that, and I worked hard to make it happen. I think, um, um, you know, we had meetings with various child-serving organizations who advised us that there was a limited amount of money available for food, healthy food, adequate food for after-school programs, and 
people typically think, oh, kids go to school hungry, have breakfast programs or lunch programs or whatever. But anybody who's running an after-school program was sort of being left out of the equation, more or less. And so we said, okay, this is a gap. We've got to fill it. Um, and so over a period of you know, five or six years, we were able to build a six, that's about a six million, so it's something more than $6 million today as an endowment. It's generating, you know, close to $300,000 a year for healthy, better quality snacks for after school programs. So, you know, I feel pretty good that we put that resource in place. It's a game where these endowments, you know, once it's in place, you don't have to do any, it just keeps coming every year, the money's there, right? And, and we still have donors who are contributing to that. And thank you to anyone who's listening who contributes to Nourishing Potential. It's really appreciated. Um, so that would be one of the easy ones for me to mention. I feel very good about some of the downtown green space activity. Uh, maybe some people have seen, for example, um, the new piece of art um, that Val Vint did at the Forks called Education is the New Bison. Uh, but other green other green space projects, the St. Boniface Belvedere, you know, the Cuban Old Market Square, you know, th there's a range of projects that we've done um, in the downtown, which I feel good about. Um, I think that there's lots of issues, downtown issues that we that we face, but but certainly the Winnipeg Foundation has invested heavily in trying to make our city a more vibrant place to live. And, and, and I think that's a really important part of things that I care about. For sure, 100%. We had uh, Trevor LaFort from Wasac on the podcast last week, and we were just uh, reminiscing about the Jonathan Taves uh, event and all that great stuff. That was such a fun day for uh, nourishing yeah. potential. Indeed. I think it's um, it's one of the interesting things about grant making at the foundation. I think one of the challenges that we face is this morning I got up early and I was reading 27 applications. They were $15,000 applications. Every one of them is very are compelling. We don't have enough money to fund them all. That's always the challenge, right? But, but there were they were fifteen thousand dollar applications. And when you think about nourishing potential grants, they're like ten thousand dollar grants, so small grants. And then on the other hand, you've got somebody comes in, a really important project in the city, made several million dollars, and and maybe put that up against a twenty seven thousand or rather twenty seven small grants versus mm. one $400,000 grant, you know, and, and what does the foundation do? Uh, you know, um, you, you keep one, you, you want to support all these small grants. They're so important food and after school programs, or as I say, $15,000 type grants can be really important to a lot of organizations. But today, a lot of the important things, important amenities that our city needs, are multi-million dollar type facilities. Think of the um, new art gallery that's being opened, uh, you know, uh, Kalmachuk. It's, it's a, um, you know, a wonderful national facility, but it's, you know, 50, $60 million of investment. So, you know, um, you got to sort of weigh these things. And I think that's one of the challenges that the foundation's always going to face. It's a matter of trying to find the right balance, but it, I don't know that there's a right answer on that, by the way, but I, I, but I think you can see sort of the struggle of, of trying to balance the two. A hundred percent. I think the right answer is just put the best people you possibly can on the grants team and then say, good luck, because this is the hardest job in the world. You know, it's, it's such a difficult process for sure. So when you think about someone listening to this podcast in 20 years, 25 years, maybe your, maybe your grandkids stumble upon it on YouTube in 20 years. What, what message do you have for the future of Winnipeg and for the future uh, of our society? I think um, the big, the big lesson, the big thing to think about is the fact that our, our society is, has a mixed economy. We have the private sector that drives the economy and entrepreneurial people are so important to make it all work. We have government that has the role of providing common services and assuring sort of broad um, amenities are available like streets to drive on and you know, <laughs> be able to turn your lights on and things like that, things mm -hmm. that we all need, common services. Um, and then we have the charitable sector. Um, and the charitable sector is all about embellishment. It's all about enabling people to get extra things done, fill in the gaps, um, sort of top up the services that 
the private sector won't provide because there's no profit in it or the public service, the public side can't afford to provide. And I think the charitable sector is a key element of our quality of life. Um, and it's worrisome in today's trends as we see the, the number of uh, people who are contributing um, to the charitable sector on decline. And it's not in Manitoba um, that we're different. I mean, it's declining in Manitoba too, but Manitoba leads the nation when it comes to generosity. There's many examples I can give in terms to demonstrate that, but we lead the nation. It's a generous province. People are you know, really trying hard to support the charitable sector. But having said that, the number of donors is in decline nationally and in Manitoba. And if this continues, I guess the message um, that I'd be leaving to my grandkids is, I, I, I hope you got that, that switched around. Because if you didn't, the quality of life that you're enjoying out then um, will not be as rich as the quality of life we're enjoying today. Um, there's just hundreds of really good organizations in Manitoba who are providing vital services um, that we really need. And, and, and they, they also engage the, the passion of volunteers, people who, who give their time freely. Um, and so the charitable sector is so important. And, and I guess as I reflect on it, I, I worry that the um, that, that somehow the the the, uh, the willingness to write a check, you know, people say we don't have enough givers, and I always say well, we don't have enough askers. I mean, that it's mm. it's, it's very hard to ask, <laughs> um, and and that's you know, but we do need people who are asking. We do need people who are out there fundraising and and, and knocking on doors, and um, you know, people give to people, and and I think that that's um, I think that that's one of the great challenges um, that we face today is how are we going to continue to maintain such a vibrant charitable sector as we enjoy today. Mm -hmm. Very well said. I love hearing you talk. You, you can just... You know, I, I just appreciate wisdom, and you, and you have loads of it, so it's great. Um, well, we're coming to the end of our time together. I know you've probably talked with Sky ad nauseum already, but what, what's the general um, message that you're leaving with Sky Bridges as he's taking up the mantle of CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation? I, I'm really excited by the prospect of him coming in here and, and having a chance to reshape things, question things, hopefully lead it in you know new directions and whatever else. He's a young person. Um, so my, uh, my dream would be that he stays 25 years too. Um, I, you know, I think um, it's sort of a joke in a sense, but I'm the fifth CEO in a hundred years, and he's the sixth. So you got to say twenty years to make average. <laughs> um, and 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 you know, I I think that um, he's inheriting a wonderful base. I think to work from great staff, wonderful board. Um, and so now, what do you do with it? Um, you've got this tool. You've got this this capacity. Where do you want to take it? And and I I think I suspect at least that when he comes here and he looks around, he's going to maybe have the same impression that I had when I came. I looked around and there's low hanging fruit everywhere. Like what do you want to work on? And and um, you know it might be downtown green spaces or it might be nourishing potential as was for me. But I think he'll choose his own ideas about what he wants to work on. And and um, you know and I think he comes with. Um, a great personality, at least from every indication I've been able to get in my conversations with him, a good value base, um, a lot of passion for this for the community, um, and so I'm I, I leave with a tremendous amount of uh, optimism uh, for the future. And of course, I'm going to be in the background as an ambassador. I'll continue to be a donor, an ambassador, and, and if he needs me on the end of the phone, all he has to do is uh, give me a shout, and I'll happily throwing my two cents worth uh, if he wants it. It's a big ship, and now he just has to choose where to steer the sh what direction to steer the ship in, right? Yeah. That's right. And it moves slowly, and, but, it, but it definitely moves. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so, yeah, he's got a great opportunity. Rick, thank you again for your time as the first and maybe ever only two-time guest on the podcast. <laughs> I, c 
couldn't have chosen a better uh, person to talk with. Thank you for your time all the time. You, you've always just been great. Anytime I could come to your office and, you know, bounce an idea off you or ask you about something or just, you know, tap into that wisdom, you've always been there for me and for the team. So thank you for that. Uh, good luck in the future. I appreciate everything you've done for us, for me personally, and, and for everyone. And, and just uh, congrats on the retirement. Well, thank you very much, Nolan. You're doing a fabulous job. Your whole team does a fabulous job, I think, in terms of communications at the foundation. And certainly, uh, I welcome the opportunity to have this uh, to have this final chat, as it were. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we'll see you in a couple hours for the staff meeting, and uh, I'll let you go get ready for that. Uh, thanks again, Rick. Take care of yourself. Be well. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. You bet. Thanks again to Rick Frost uh, for being the second guest, two-time guest on the podcast. It was an honor to have you back. Um, yeah, everything I said in the podcast rings true. Obviously, he's a great—he's been a great boss and is a great man and has done amazing things for Winnipeg. So he will be missed. But you know, it's uh, time for a new chapter, and Sky Bridges is going to be a really interesting fit. I'm really excited to meet him and talk to him as well. Hopefully, we can have him on the pad podcast in the future. But we'll see. But again, Rick, um, yeah, take care of yourself. Be well. Thank you again for everything you've done for us. All music on the Because and Effect podcast is composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. And if you want to hear more good news stories from around Winnipeg, listen to Because Radio every Thursday at noon on 93.7 CJNU in Winnipeg or at cjnu.ca. Uh, you can hear Because Radio. It's a weekly radio show that talks to people in Winnipeg doing good work and really making an impact on the city. So if you uh, want to hear good news stories, you can go to becauseradio.org or hear it every Thursday at noon on 93.7 CJNU. Because in Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can hear more from the foundation by going to wpgfdn.org or by searching at wpgfdn on all social media accounts. I'm at Nolan Bicknell. You can find me on the social media accounts there. And remember... Do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Bye-bye.